We're in a season of 2020 vision, and two weeks ago, Doug shared a lot of the decisions that are before us. And one of the slides that he put up was something called the DNA of Parkview. And these are five convictions that we're hoping to weave into everything we do at Parkview. And one of those convictions is this, love God's people. This is something we want to weave into everything we do at Parkview, is a genuine love for his people. And this is what we're going to be looking at this morning as we study Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14. And so you can turn there if you have a Bible. It's also in your bulletin, Colossians 3, 12 to 14. A little bit about Colossians 3. Uh, Wade Urig, our college pastor, actually preached on the first four verses in this chapter. Uh, I think it was two, three weeks ago. And in those verses, what we see is a very, very clear and awesome teaching of our identity in Jesus, the union we have with him. And then the rest of the passage in verses 5 to 17, what you see Paul doing is using this language of clothing, and he talks about putting off the clothes of sin, the earthly clothes, and putting on the clothes of Christ. And there is this process of growth, of putting off and putting on. And so let's read uh, this passage, Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14. Paul says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let me go to God to help us as we look at this passage. Father, uh, we're so desperate for your help in this moment. I'm, I'm so desperate for your help. And so pray your spirit to give me a clarity of mind and pray for us as we look at this passage. I pray, Holy Spirit, soften our hearts that we would gladly obey you. And give us eyes that long to see the glory of God move among us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was doing some research for this sermon, I came across an interesting story that hit news stations in 2015. There was a man uh, who was being divorced by his wife, and the judge had pronounced that he was required to give his wife half. And the man took the verdict, and he thought long and hard about it, and he went home, and he literally cut everything he had in half. We have some pictures of the different items that he cut in half. He cut his couch. He cut a teddy bear. Then he cut his laptop, and he even cut his car. And he posted them on eBay and tried to sell them. And this man, he made a video about this incident that he cut all of his stuff. And the guy had like five different saws to cut through glass and steel and fabric. And there was an inscription on the video that said this, Thank you for 12 beautiful years, Laura! You really earned half. 
And it makes you wonder, what would drive someone to do something so stupid? Or maybe better, to do something so cruel? And as I've thought about this question, I keep coming back to something called resentment. Resentment uh, is a heart culture of condemnation and bitterness. It is harboring bitterness against another person because of something they did or didn't do. And the tricky thing about resentment is it's likely driven by a real wrong. Someone has actually wronged you. But we'll see that it is actually kind of a disordered form of justice. It's a good desire, but it's been diseased in some ways. Basically, what happens with resentment is we create this little courtroom in our hearts where we sit as a judge and we pronounce judgment and then we begin to inflict punishment and pain on another person. And we're so susceptible to this. We're so prone to this. It can happen, uh, it can happen like on the inside where I, I think, you, you know the movies that where you have a guy on the wall and you're throwing darts at it? We do it on, on the inside. But then oftentimes it bubbles up to the surface and comes out, maybe with our words or something we, we do to another person, or maybe something we, we haven't done. You've heard of the silent treatment? This is resentment. It's inflicting punishment and pain on another person. We are people prone to resentment. In the small things, maybe an indirect comment someone makes, where you, you get put down, or road rage is another great example. I know, I just wrecked me. <laughs> when someone cuts you off, you want to punish, you want to get back. But it also is very, very tempting with the big things. When you have a spouse that commits adultery, when you have a, a, a friend, a devoted friend that stabs you in the back, the temptation is to harbor bitterness and resentment towards that person. And the truth is that it inevitably kills us. But there's good news. God calls us out of resentment and he gives us a way to healing. Paul, in this passage, he gives us the best medicine for resentment. You know what it is? A culture of love culture of love. And this is our aim this morning as we study this passage is this, that the gospel calls us to create a culture of love, a culture of love at Parkview Church. As a congregation, when we talk about big decisions, when we're, when we're sharing that information, that it's done in love and that it's received in love, in our community groups, when we try and learn what it looks like to live life with one another, and talk about the stuff going on in our hearts. And even in our ministry teams, our elder teams, our staff team, that we would create a culture of love because of the gospel. And this is not merely a culture that understands the doctrines of love, but it's a culture that practices love in really tangible Ways. And we're going to see this dynamic throughout this sermon as we look at three things. 
the gospel of love, the clothes of love, and the goal of love. Let's look at the first point, the gospel of love. The gospel of love elevates forgiveness. If you look in the passage, there's a few lines that I want to point out. One in verse 12, where Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones. And then at the end of 13, he says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So as Paul, he calls us to create a culture of love, he directs our attention to the gospel. This is his argument. His argument is to create a culture of love because of the gospel. And I want to highlight one phrase that I think helps us understand what I'm saying. And it is the phrase, God's chosen ones. All throughout scripture, we see that God's people are God's chosen people. That God sovereignly chooses his people. And sometimes this kind of makes us a little sketched out, a little squirmy. But I think the Bible is, is, is true in saying that God's sovereignty, God's sovereign choice in salvation, it doesn't swallow up human choice. So the Bible is clear and it says God chose you. If you're a Christian here this morning, God chose you. You didn't choose him. You didn't seek after God and find God. He found you. This is what the New Testament teaches. And yet, there is human responsibility. We are called to respond to the gospel. And so what you have is a tension. And it makes us uncomfortable. There's a tension there. We don't understand how can those two fit together. But I think what's happening is God is teaching us something in the tension. I've been in my uh, devotional life reading through Isaiah 55 and the prophet on behalf of the Lord says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. We, we get stuck because we think as finite creatures, we can understand infinite or the truth of an infinite being. But we can't. Keep the tension there. God is sovereign in salvation. And what this does, this is, this is really why I, I bring this up. We think about God choosing us. This is what's true. That if you're a Christian, this is your narrative. Before the foundation of the world, God saw you. And he saw your life. And he saw all of your failures, all of your disappointments, and all of your disobedience. And he said, I want that one. Give me that one. And he said, I will make this one an object of my forgiveness. And this is why Paul points to forgiveness. He says, as the Lord forgave you, so you also must forgive. And what he's saying is that we really don't have any rights to withhold forgiveness from another person. We don't have rights to harbor bitterness and resentment because of the Lord. He points to the Lord because Jesus, Jesus is the only one who actually has a right to judge and to give punishment. But what does he do? He gives those rights up. He gives them up so that we can enjoy forgiveness. There's a quote by C.S. Lewis uh, that I think is helpful 
um, and just illustrates what I'm saying here. He says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is hard. Thank you for that, C.S. Lewis. Right? This is hard. How can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say our prayers each night. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. The gospel of love elevates forgiveness. There was a story a few years ago that came out, it was really popular, called Unbroken. It was a biography originally written, and then it turned into a movie. And the story is about a man named Louis Zamperini. And Louis was a great Olympic athlete who later became an army officer. And his story is, is really, there's a lot of resilience and a lot of adversity. And that's not the reason that I share this, but it's, it's, kinda, it's a really powerful story. And eventually, Louis finds himself in a POW camp. And in this camp, he is brutalized. He's humiliated. He's tortured, largely because he was an Olympic athlete. And so these oppressors, they wanted to make an example and show their domination over America. And so they just threw everything at this guy. And he exhibited a lot of resilience. He didn't break. That's why it's called unbroken. But... He eventually gets out of the POW camp and he goes home to America and he starts a family and he meets Jesus. And part of his story of redemption is traveling back to the country where he was tortured and brutalized. And he sits down with the officers that humiliated him, brutalized him, and he offers them forgiveness. It's such a powerful powerful story of forgiveness. And this is what he says at the end of his biography. He's quoted, I think the hardest thing in life is to forgive. Hate is self-destructive. If you hate somebody, you're not hurting the person you hate. You're hurting yourself. Forgiveness is a healing. Actually, it's a real healing. Now, I imagine in a room of this size with this many people that there are people in here who have had terrible, terrible things done to them. And if you're not one of those people, you you should be aware there is a lot of pain and hurt in this room. And I'm not trying to minimize this pain, and I'm not trying to say that there isn't a sense of justice to that pain. But what I am saying is that the goal of forgiveness, the goal of forgiveness is the path to freedom. It's the path to healing because we have been forgiven greatly. And it's not, I hear sometimes when people talk about forgiveness, they say things like, forgiveness is about me, it's not about them. And and I, I understand what people are saying, but I don't think that's helpful because forgiveness is about God. It's about imaging God and receiving his forgiveness and then gladly offering it to others. And we are healed in the process, which is a pretty sweet thing. 
It's like God actually knew what he was doing in setting up this thing. Uh, My wife and I have some strong convictions about forgiveness. And one of the things that we have committed to do in our home is to speak the language of forgiveness. And so we're teaching our kids right now. We're teaching one of our, one of them's five months old, so we're really not teaching her much. Uh, Maybe she's picking it up by osmosis or something. But we're teaching our our two-and-a-half-year-old, almost three, we're teaching her the language of forgiveness. So when she pushes someone at the park, which just happened last week, we're inviting her to ask for forgiveness. And probably where it's more clearly taught is when I wrong her and have to ask her forgiveness, which just happened last week. Got a screaming baby on my arm, and she just will not listen to what I'm saying. I don't understand it. I've told you 12 times. And I lost my temper and I yelled at her. And like most two-year-olds, she lost it. She started crying. And I had to get down and talk to her and just say, Sawyer, I'm so sorry. What I just did to you was wrong. Your dad should never, never, never talk to you that way. Will you forgive me? And the sweetest words that ever come out of my two-year-old's mouth. Dad, I forgive you. And she has no idea what the words mean. But we're, we're injecting that language into our home. And this is what we need to do in the local church at Parkview. We need to inject the language of forgiveness. So when was the last time you asked someone for forgiveness? We, we know that the, we're having conflict. That's, family is so hard because you live with the people 24-7. That's why there's just all of this. Let's inject this language of forgiveness in our community groups, in our congregation. Have the courage to step into conflict and pursue reconciliation together. And so the gospel elevates forgiveness, but the gospel also gives us a platform to put on the clothes of love. And we see this in the second point. In the clothes of love, they dress us for the occasion. And we see them just plainly stated in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Talk about a powerhouse team right there. That is some nice stuff. And this language of clothing, remember, I I said earlier, what Paul is doing is he's saying, put on these clothes. Adorn yourself with these kinds of qualities. And so I want to talk through these five features of the clothes of love so we can capture really what this, what the Bible is calling us into. And so the first one is compassion. This is a heart of mercy. It's seeing others from God's perspective. All of the groups that the world runs from, Christians are running towards. And this is exactly what the benders have displayed to us so well. In a population that's largely forgotten by our society, the benders are running towards them. We're hoping to, to get a crew that's going to do that with them. Secondly, kindness. 
gracious sensitivity to the needs of others. It's just a genuine desire to be a blessing and to be a help to others. Humility, others-focused. Paul says in Philippians 2, consider others more significant than yourself. Could you imagine if all of our meetings at Parkview, we had this check every time before we spoke, we said, okay, consider others more significant than myself. All right, let's go. Could you imagine the kind of way that this conversation would change? And it would be the beginning of creating a culture of love. Meekness. This, this one is dynamite. And this one is actually the, the antithesis of resentment. It's the opposite of resentment. If resentment is creating a courtroom in our heart where we sit as judge and pronounce judgment, meekness is actually saying, hey, I'm not going to defend myself because I'm not the defender. God is the judge. It is very clearly resentment repellent. It's absorbing the roughness and sin of others and not quickly defending oneself. I love what John Piper says on meekness. He says, meekness loves to learn and it counts the corrective blows of a friend as precious. Proverbs 27. And when it must say a critical word to a person caught in sin or error, it speaks from the deep conviction of its own fallibility and its own susceptibility to sin and its utter dependence on the grace of God. It's so great, so lovely. And then the last one is patience. This is just a willingness to endure with others, to persevere with people. The next word that he uses is bearing. It's, I, I lift weights. And so it's like you got weights up on your back and you're bearing with other people. And so these are the clothes that we are to put on. And this is going to help us. It's going to dress us for the occasion of creating a culture of love. And as I think about this point, I keep, I, I always think about a wedding. And if the Christian gospel is anything, it's an invitation to a wedding. And so many of you probably have been to a wedding of someone you love dearly. Maybe it's a child, a brother, sister, or a really good, good friend. And what's the first thing that you have to think about before you go to this wedding? What am I going to wear? I got to wear something nice, right? You want to look good. But... The reality is most of the clothes we like actually have a a pretty big price tag. And if we're honest, I think in the back of my mind, we're like, man, I could probably use that $400 or something else. And here's, here's the thing with this point. The clothes have already been purchased. You don't need to earn these clothes. You don't need to work to the, get these clothes in your life. They're already accessible in Jesus. They're in your closet. All you got to do is put them on and wear them and enjoy them. And what it will do is there will be a real, genuine love, delight, and affection for God's people that will fill your heart and mind. The clothes of love dress us for the occasion. And then the last point is the goal of love. The goal of love is a safe environment for growth. If you read Verse 14, look what it says. It says, and above all these, 
put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This, the Greek word for perfect harmony, it has this sense of wholeness and completeness. And really what Paul is getting at is this idea of maturity, that we would grow up into the image of Jesus. And if we trace our steps back in what I've just been saying, we, we already see this happening, the dynamic in these types of things. As we begin to speak the language of forgiveness, we image God who has forgiven us. When we put on the clothes of Christ, we image Christ to the world. But this last one has to do with a safe environment, safety. There's a pastor in Tennessee, and he talks about a vision for the local church, and he uses an equation. He says, gospel plus safety plus time. And listen to what he says about safety. It's super awesome, and I love it. So listen to what he says. A non-accusing environment, no embarrassing anyone, no manipulation, oppression, or condescension, but respect, sympathy, and understanding, where sinners can confess and unburden their souls. A church environment where no one seeking the Lord has anything to fear. Isn't that lovely? That is so beautiful. And this is what we all need, is safety. Especially for those of us who are experiencing deep hurt. You need a safe place to share what's going on, to be heard by someone, and for someone to say, that is terrible. And to point you to Jesus. And so, community group leaders in this room, we've got to fight for safety. We have to create a place of safety in our groups. Student ministry leaders, we have to, to create a place of safety with our students. Because that's where we finally feel free to grow. And then the last thing I want to point out is, and it's not taught directly in this passage, but we see it in the New Testament. And it's something that I think is really an opportunity for us to grow. And it's this idea of a community apologetic. A community apologetic. I like the phrase when we talk about mission is this idea of displaying and declaring the gospel. We need both. When we preach the gospel, that there is something beautiful that follows it. And so I'm 33. So I think I'm the oldest millennial. And I actually like to consider myself the big brother millennial. Um, I don't, I've never told anyone. This is like my coming out story. <laughs> um, big brother millennial. And I, I, I honestly think that if the apologetic of the older generation, the last 20, 30 years, was this, the, que- the answer to this question, is it true? And you could, you could say the truth of the gospel and people could engage with it and access it, but millennials are no longer asking that question. The question they're answering, or the question they're asking is, is it beautiful? Show me something 
beautiful. And then we'll talk about truth. And like church history, every time the culture asks a question, the church rises to answer it. And it's built into this thing. A culture of love. Creating a culture of love is going to turn into this beautiful witness to Iowa City. And people are going to say, what is going on there? It's exactly what Jesus said. They will know you by your love. So the goal of love is a safe environment for growth. I have had the privilege of getting to know one of the most wonderful women who is sitting right here. My lovely friend, Nancy Saraduck, who is in my community group. Yeah, we love Nancy in our community group. We love Nancy at this church. And Nancy shared her story last year in our community group, and and it's filled with some hurt. When she was a girl, her dad was ripped from her. In her marriage, her, her husband bailed on her in a really hurtful way. And I was talking to Nancy on Friday, asking her more about her story, and she said, I felt so alone. Literally, what she said is, I felt like I had a bag of rocks on me. And Parkview became my family. They, they grabbed a hold of me. They became her safety, a place where she could grow and learn what it looks like to see her hurt healed by the gospel. Now, there might be someone in here who is a little skeptical. It's kind of like, I hear you say safety and church in the same sentence, and that's not been my experience. I've been hurt by Christians. A couple things. First, I'm so glad you're here. That's awesome that you're here that you're still here or you've come back. And I would, I would venture to suggest that there's something wooing you. There's something drawing you back to this, this book, to this community. If you explore other worldviews, there's no other worldview that keeps love at the center like the Christian worldview. Because the Christian worldview is centered on the Christian gospel. And what do we have in the gospel? If nothing else, we have a God who takes on our hurt. He takes on our flaws. He takes on our brokenness so that we can grow and we can flourish. And so we're invited into this community that's seeking to create a culture of love because of the gospel. And we do this as we practice forgiveness. We want to be a people that have forgiveness on our lips, that are speaking the language of forgiveness with one another. Also, we do this by putting on the clothes that Jesus has purchased for us. Meekness, humility, compassion. Talk about some beautiful clothes. And then lastly, it's through building a safe environment where we can grow and we can learn together about the greatness of God's love for sinners. And so let us, let us go there together. That would be my prayer, is that we would have this vision 
of creating a culture of love at Parkview. So let me pray for us. Father, yeah, what do we need? What help us? I don't know the questions that are swirling in this room. I don't know the hurt. But I just pray that you would meet us in it. I pray that people would feel and know the love of God, that they would feel your embrace today. And I ask for us as your church, I ask that you would just just inject us with tons of energy and tons of passion to fulfill this vision of a culture of love. We love you and we trust you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.